All right, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. We do the ago, I may. Which one do we do? Okay, good evening. My name is Anne Marie Harvey. Um, I work with the Pratt Library, now at the Waverly Branch, but we're being renovated, so I'm at Northwood. And this evening, I have whew, the pleasure of introducing two Caribbean authors. Um, June has passed. That was Caribbean American History Month. Um, we usually love having our culture, you know, throughout the year, but June is when we really push it and let people know all the great things that Caribbean Americans are doing. And here tonight we have two. We have Katya D. Ulysse and we have Tiffany Yannick. And this evening, um, they're going to read for us for 20 minutes apiece. And then we're going, getting ready to ask some questions. And then they will sign the books sitting up here at the end of the evening. Um, I won't really go into a lot as to who these ladies are because I'm sure that they will do a better job of selling themselves than I probably would. But I would like to say that, Katya, I've met you um, maybe four years ago. And um, it was during one of those crazy month of June programming, arts fests, music, Haiti, talking about Haiti, writings, and what we are doing, what's going on after the earthquake, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, as an immigrant myself, I love hearing stories. I love hearing stories from um, different parts of the Caribbean. Um, there are things that I was reading, I was reading um, Yannick's book, I was like, that really happened? I gotta have to check that. That's the librarian in me. I'm gonna have to go look at that. Is that really true? Did they do that? Then I see words. I'm like, oh, Ginep is Kenep. Hmm, okay, I got it. So the things that separate us also make us so familiar with each other, but we just don't know. You have the language, but we're still the same people. Um, and I'm very happy that you guys carry a spirit, you know, where you basically tell our stories. And you continue to tell our stories, even living in America. And I appreciate you guys coming out. Come on up to the front. You're not even ready for me. Me? Both, all, both of you, come on up. <laughs> I know, but I don't want to give a dissertation. You know, I didn't write the book yet. I just read the book. <laughs> you know. So come on up. You will be able to tell the audience all that you need to tell them about your wonderful um, stories. Okay. <laughs> okay. You have water beside you. Make yourself comfortable. And, you know, as I said, sell yourself. Okay. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I could read all the blurbs that I want about... Oh, the pointedly, um, okay, but that doesn't say much, does it, right? You, when you hear it from the author's mouth, I believe is that's when you know what the story is all about, okay? All right, ready? <laughs> We're going to have Tiffany go first, since they're picking me the mini mini Hi, you guys. I'm going to read up here. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. It's so wonderful to be in a library. My grandmother, who raised me, was a librarian. Um, and my mother was also a librarian. And so I feel like libraries are not only where I was raised, but also that they're sacred spaces. So it feels really wonderful to be here in a library. So thank you guys for hosting us, and thanks to all of you guys for coming out and um, supporting not only our books, but also supporting the library. And, you know, also, as important as the library, supporting your independent bookstores, um, which is really vital, especially in urban centers. It's so wonderful to continue to have really good, strong, independent bookstores that are not only selling books from the bookstores, but also being involved in the community, so thank you to Ivy for being here. Really appreciate that, um, and support the bookstore. So, you know, if you buy your books from somewhere else, try and buy at least one book or something. Buy like a, a magnet from Ivy, something. Like support the bookstore so the bookstore can continue. 
it's really important that we support the bookstores. Okay, so um, I'm Tiffany Anique. This is my first novel, Land of Love and Drowning. Um, it came out last week, so it's like hot, just off the press. Um, I'm going to be reading from deep into the novel, so I'll just give you a little bit of context. Um, my um, my great-grandfather was a ship captain, and in 1926, his ship went down off the coast of the Dominican Republic, which was then called Santo Domingo, and he went down with his ship. And this was a really momentous moment in Virgin Islands history. It was said that every Virgin Islands family lost someone when that ship went down. Um, so it was an important moment in Virgin Islands history, but a really important moment in my personal history, my family history. My grandmother, who raised me, was his youngest child. She was three when he passed. And our family went from being a family of upper-middle-class um, standing to being a very poor family. Um, and I was raised in that family. Um, but there were books everywhere, which was what saved me. Yeah? Um, what I'm going to be reading is from the middle of the book, but also from the middle sort of of this family story. So um, the book is about that beginning, but it's also about how the Virgin Islands changes as we move from being the Danish West Indies, which we were before 1917, to them being the U.S. Virgin Islands, which we became when America bought us in 1917. And so my book follows that um, transition, that political transition, but it follows this family, the captain's family, and what happens to their family over the course of this um, transition to becoming American. So a big momentous thing was not only the ship going, but was also, for us, was World War II, which was important for all of America, but had an unusual um, effect on the Virgin Islands. Almost, again, almost every Virgin Islander, I would say every Virgin Islands family sent someone to World War II. Um, and my grandfather uh, went as well. And so the story I'm going to read from, this is fiction, but I'm going to read from a story that some of it is true. Um, it was passed down to me from my grandfather. And this boy in the book, his name is Jacob, and he's the son of the captain. Um, it, he's a Virgin Islander, but it takes place in New Orleans where he's been um, stationed when she's joined the army. Sudden changes in gravity, bright flashing light, loud clanging noises, the usual hot and cold. All this Jacob's brother, who was a dentist, has said would make the pain throb in Jacob's tooth. Why light? Why noise? Teeth couldn't see or hear, but like a sense he hadn't learned to harness, his teeth could feel sound, could feel darkness and be comforted by it. This was America, his brother insisted over the phone. Strange things happened in America. Jacob had gone to Howard University two years younger than his peers and then finished in three. He knew firsthand how strange America could be, how mulatto Caribbean men like he was who were educated and high-bred, could go to American colleges and become Negro overnight. The music from Jacob's little wooden box sang loudly because Jacob's tooth didn't mind the blues. A woman was crooning. My, my, a woman could croon. A woman could sweep a man from his feet. The world was changing, yes, indeed. The boys pomaded their low-cut hair, Spice had a conch and his hair was pitch black, like the pit in Trinidad. But Jacob creased his own uniform pants and they all shined their shoes. They had leave this night. They were going out on the town. They were going to drink. They were going to dance. Maybe meet a few nice, pretty women who could sweep men off their feet. Now Ronald's lips were full and soft and his wife had come to enjoy pressing her own mouth against them. His hands were smooth, despite his job of washing dishes. And he was a regular man in every other way, and he knew this. He felt that being regular was something of which to be proud. Now Spice was thick-bodied and dark and angry, with straight hair that grew like weeds. The French Quarter woman loved being forcibly seduced by him. 
They only had to catch him in their eyes like a speck of dust, and he was in them until he alone wanted out. Jacob's body was lean and tall like the trunk of a coconut tree. He always had a mist on his upper lip, which made him want, which made women want to lick his mouth. He trimmed his own brown pubic hair with a delicate scissors. His underarms were always moist, and his body gave off the smell of soil. His skin and eyes and hair were all the same wet sand color. Even the white sergeants could not explain their own desire to root into him. In her letter, his mother had reminded him, there is more schooling still. Do not settle. Hurry back. Stay alive. Well, he was going out tonight, going to trawl Treme and the French Quarter, going to dip his hands into the Mississippi River. He was a handsome man, and he had the will to do just about anything. He was going to be a doctor if he outlived the war, and he would live. His mother watched over him, and his soul was huge, and someday he would marry someone as desirable. But now, hey, I want to find out which of these Creole ladies going to be the mother of my children. Together, these three island soldiers made a perfect, beautiful man. When they were dropped off at the edge of town, they all stopped to wipe clean their shoes. Tall, coolie hair, soft lips. The three of them walked puff-chested down the boulevard, and the people watched them. Men gawked, tipped their hats. Even the night women slinked by them, only to stop and look back at the way their muscle buttocks pressed against, again and again, their pants. The men were belly hungry for something besides the rations and rubber pancakes fed to them at the base, so they didn't wait to reach the fancy of the French Quarter. The door was flung open. The smell of frying pork reached out. It was a charred smell, a greasy and smoky and bloody smell. The sign said, Mama's Place. The name of the joint was all that was needed for Jacob to nod at the two who were his right-hand man, Spice and Ronald, and they all walked in. They sat down at the only empty table. And all of a sudden, the jukebox was playing too loudly and the lights were dull, except for over their table, where a solitary bulb shivered, its brightness landing on Jacob again and again. The counter with the hefty lady serving the drinks was never empty. The patrons spoke in screams. Pots were banging somewhere. The walls were painted yellow, giving off a noise of their own. And Jacob's tooth threatened to jump out of his mouth. And now his eyes twitched too, and he held his hand thoughtfully to his face. Spice was cracking mean, hearty jokes, but drumming his fingers against the table, making it shake. The other tables emptied and filled, and they waited. Excuse me, miss. We ready to order when you're ready. Excuse me, ma'am. I see you're busy. Can we just tell you what we want? Miss, a bowl of gumbo, one of those poor boy sandwiches, please, miss. She was thin and middle-aged. Her hair was under a scarf, but her eyes were a bright sea green, a disturbing contrast to her milky and sagging skin. She wore a worn-out white uniform. It was short and graying, and the boys felt bad for her. She was kind of pretty with those mossy eyes, and she smiled at them again as she rushed by. None of them had a watch, but after what seemed like an hour, she finally took their order It's going to take a real long time, soldiers, she said. You sure you want to eat here? It's Mama's place, Ronnie remarked with a hungry smile. The woman nodded and repeated that it would take some time, and wouldn't they want to eat somewhere else, maybe deeper down in the quarter? What the fuck is going on, Spice said directly to the mossy waitress, who stepped back and looked afraid. He was pressing his fingers into the table now, trying to fight the urge to slap her, trying instead to leave his prints in the wood. Jacob interrupted, ma'am, we're sorry to bother you. He fixed his pretty eyes on hers, commanding her in the way he could always command women. His tooth was aching, but perhaps hunger made it hurt more too. 
ma'am, just bring us some chips and some drinks to start. We'll be fine. We'll wait. You boys not from around here, she said and nodded. Grenada watched her walk away. Spiced watched her give the meal ticket to the large woman at the counter, watched them whisper, watched the waitress's head nod again. The big one was Mama, Mama's place. This was clear. And Mama stared out at Spice as if he was indeed his island of Grenada, and she was the Pinta or the Santa Maria, her big boat self, come to eat him alive. He should keep an eye on her. But his staring was rude, and she was his elder, so he turned away. He suggested out loud to Jacob that it was time to leave. Ronald rubbed his palms and belched. His belly was filling with gas. Nah, partner, we're not leaving. We're going to get served right now. (laughs) The gray waitress moved back and forth, except now she didn't smile or even meet their eyes. They called to her, Miss, excuse me, Miss. Finally, Spice elbowed Jacob to go, and then Jacob did something. He whistled at the waitress. Sure. Jacob had some awareness of Jim Crow when he was in college, but he'd never really believed that it applied to him. And he'd been working too hard, isolating himself so well that he'd never had to find out. Sure, his school was all Negro, and the shops he frequented were all Negro, and the wait staff at his job was all Negro, but that's how it was home on the island, too. There was no American Jim Crow in St. Thomas. Negroes light and dark were the majority, and he'd assume that's all it was in D.C., and now in New Orleans, too. And how could Jim Crow apply anywhere now that they were here in uniform, pledged to die in this joint? Besides, New Orleans was so like St. Thomas, the verandas, the ladies throwing themselves at his feet, the music thrumming in the streets. How could he be anything less than the coveted man that he was? But when he whistled, it was as if everyone, every single one at every single table at Mama's had been waiting for that signal. It was as if the show had now begun and Jacob was an unexpected player because the place went quiet except for the box playing something loud and eager. And Jacob's tooth pulsed with each rub of of his blood, and he wanted to cry out because the pain had become suddenly unbearable. Hey now, niggers can't be whistling at white women, not in the state of Louisiana. A big man with those omniscient words stood. He wore his hat even though they were indoors. His clean white shirt was belted in by suspenders. They held up plain and pressed pants. The big man was dressed old-fashioned, but he was younger than Jacob. He walked over to the soldier boys calmly, and though he was only a few yards away, during this walk, a few couples managed to scuffle on out of Mama's joint. The big man also managed to duplicate himself so that by the time he reached their table, there were seven or eight who looked just like him, standing just beyond his shoulders. And in the eye of the soldiers, the suspenders gave him a sort of comical look. Only young schoolboys wore suspenders back home on the island. Ronnie thought, hopefully, that this fellow was the owner's son and could make him apologize for the bad service they'd had. But Jacob didn't twitch. He looked at his men. Ronnie's eyes were open and watering. Grenada looked ready, just ready. Did this young boy just call me a nigger? Jacob said. He was incredulous. He didn't even mean to be bold. But the big guy put his big hands flat on the edge of their table. He was smiling. Let me clarify for you soldier boys. I don't think you're in the right place. He looked at each of them one by one. You're giving Mama a hard time. His words were steady, but there was a bit of shrillness to them as though his voice had just broken. He gesticulated toward the big lady at the counter, but the soldiers did not move their gaze. They were trained, well, keep your eyes on the talking enemy. We're all Americans here, the man said. We're all patriots. 
but we're not going to stand for disrespect to our women. Now, how old was this youngster in his small boy suspenders? Who did he think he was? Jacob was in charge. Jacob was the leader. He felt something warm and moist warm its way around his mouth. You just want to eat, man. This ain't your eating place, soldier. They didn't move. But then there was a sudden change in gravity as the man, the boy really, spoke again. If you niggers leave quietly, me and my friends won't drag you out by your dicks and throw you in the river. Are you understanding now? Yes, Jacob understood. Here was a story like his schoolmates at Howard had told him. Here it was, and here he was. He was going to be a doctor. He could play piano better than anybody. He could swim like he was from the ocean. This kid in suspenders couldn't see all that, but surely he could see that they were in uniform. They had shined their shoes, combed their hair. Still, Jacob, with his so big soul, pushed his chair back slowly. It made an achy, grating noise against the ground, a sound like something ill being exposed. The others followed. The big boy leaned back, let the soldiers who had pledged to die for this America walk out a mama. And Jacob didn't pause, not even for a minute, just walked straight out. And the men followed Jacob out into the street where he spat thick, dark blood onto the pavement. They walked until they found the water. But the Mississippi River wasn't the Caribbean Sea. So they kept walking in their darkness until a truck of military supplies passed and made room for the men among the fresh white linens. Thank you. That's a good book. <laughs> it is. I'm reading it at home. It's, and I, it's beautiful. Oh, it's my turn. It's my turn. I am so happy to be here. Yannick, you did a fabulous job. I, I love your book. And, uh, you know, I, I love the Poe Room. This is my second time reading here. I love to be here. Especially because um, Edgar Allan Poe was one of the first to, if not the first to, to um, do the short story, write short stories, little stories that you could just sit there, you know, while you were having your burger or whatever they had back in those days. And then just read a story. You know, you, you sit there and you read for about 30 minutes and you just travel to a whole other world. And, and that was um, wonderful. So I love the short story form. I write a lot of short stories, a um, couple of novels. But this is a collection of short stories, yes? Drifting is a collection of short stories that uh, I'm very proud of, and I hope that if you have read it, that you like it, too. Um, but when I read, I, first of all, I should tell you that I, I write because my great-grandmother told stories all the time, so I'm like a, a storyteller, hopefully about a quarter as good as my great-grandmother was. And when she told stories, the one thing that went with our stories was a little song. So I always have to sing a little song to kind of like bring my great-grandmother into the room and just kind of like set the atmosphere. Yeah, I like to do that. So, so just please listen to this little song that my great-grandmother used to sing. To me at night, scared me to death. <laughs> but I love it. And it goes like this. Mimi, oh Mimi, moi, bam la koi, Mimi. Mimi, oh Mimi, moi, bam la koi, Mimi. 
Dio samba basilico Releco bom laco O samba basilico Releco bom laco Ai mimi So I'm going to read to you a story, which is actually not in the book. It's on the website, the Kashik's website, part of three vignettes. And uh, it's called Take a Picture. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Yes? I'll just quiz you afterwards, right, Ms. Madison? But, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. So it's called Take a Picture. Pink lips pucker to kiss shy black boys begging for crumbs, naked girls ashamed and afraid. You see, she vows to win this war against poverty. The photographer's lens is her loaded gun. She poses, remembering to rub her blue eyes to summon the redness, the sadness, tears in dark circles are priceless in this place. Oh, I will cry for magazines, you know. There will be talk shows, interviews. I will say, good morning, America. Yes, you know, the, the sadder the eyes, the better. Look at these desperate children. You see how I feed them, America? See how I care for them? See how much I love them? See how much and how often I bury them, digging little graves with my own hands? Take a picture. Come on, Mr. Photographer, take another. And yes, yes, take another. You see, Haitians don't care about their own children, but I do, I do. Oh, yes, I do. Take a picture, see? Take another picture. Wait, wait, wait. Let me fix my blouse. You know, a little cleavage goes a long way here, and I'm going far, baby. I'm going so far to the talk shows. What do you say, Mr. Photographer? Take a picture. Wait. No, 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 wait, somebody, somebody come quick, find me a baby to hold. No, not that one, that one is just too healthy. Give me one, give me that one over there, see, the one, oh yes, malnourished, and, and yes, that one is perfect. Look, sunken eyes, a deformed head, ashy skin, parched lips, flies, oh yes, look at all those flies, thank you, thank you, God, thank you, this baby will do so well. Take a picture. Oh, this will be great and oppressed. The talk show hostess will cry out, in the name of God, give this lady some money to go back and help, help, help. Take a picture, Mr. Photographer. I need to show the world how much I care about Haiti and Haiti's children. You know, I can go all the way to Oprah. I can go all over the world, but take a picture, you know. Pictures are worth a million words at a dollar each. Take a picture. Yes, yes. Take another picture. Hey, Mr. Photographer, how much film you got in that camera? Let's take a picture. Thank you. Take a picture. This one here is called Bereavement Pay. If you work for somebody, if you've ever worked for anyone, you know that uh, when somebody passes away, you go to the boss and talk about not so much bereavement pay, but time off. How much time can you, you know? So, bereavement pay. And uh, I'll give you a little uh, context. So this is a, a person. You know, I'm not sure if this character is a man or a woman. Somebody asked me, you know, that's really not the point here. It's just, I think it could be man or woman, just a worker. An employee. So the employee goes in to, to, is after the quake, to find out about bereavement pay. Right? Bereavement pay. And the boss says, come on in, dear. Sit. Would you like some coffee, you know, tea, crackers? I have crackers in the office. Listen, how often does the boss ask if you'd like something to drink or eat, huh? Things are changing. Times are changing, aren't they? You know, some say the world is coming to an end. I hope they're wrong. By the way, my dear, has everyone in your family been accounted for? 
Hmm. You know, never mind that question, because you must be getting sick of hearing it. You know, people must be asking you all the time, has everyone in your family been accounted for? I mean, that's an odd question. After all, it's been weeks since the quake struck. I hope you don't hold it against me for asking you this now, but, you know, I've been busy with life, doing boss duty things. You know how it is. I hear communication is pretty bad between here and there. Here it's tough getting through. Have you been able to reach your people? And from what I understand, communication was pretty below standard even before this thing happened. I'm guessing you don't know much of anything now, do you? Come to think of it, you may never know if all of your family is accounted for. Huh, dear God. Listen, I understand. I really do. You know, I've even had a few nightmares. If I were in your shoes, I don't know what I'd do. I can't even begin to wrap my brain around some of the images I've seen on CNN. I can't imagine what your people must be going through. The scope of this mess is like nothing the world has ever seen. You know, I mean, dead bodies in wheelbarrows, dead bodies being shoveled into mass graves, blood, blood everywhere, dust and blood. No one has a name, really no one is accounted for. This sort of thing? Huh, that must never happen on U.S. soil. I've got kids, you know. I've got a boy and a girl plus one on the way. Can you imagine? I don't know what I'd do if something like that were to happen here. Even the military guys down in your country are having a difficult time, from what I understand. And some of those guys have done tours in Iraq, Afghanistan. They say your country has a desert beat by a thousand miles. You know, I read somewhere that the soldiers now have trouble sleeping. They can't even keep food down. They are going to need some serious assistance after this quick thing blows over. War. You know, war, war is different. You expect to see certain things on the battlefield. You expect to hear certain noises, cries. You expect to smell certain smells. You expect to see death. A lot of it, in fact, but, but this isn't war. My dear, my dear, my heart goes out to you and to your family. Believe me when I tell you that my heart goes out to your country too. I mean, I never heard so much about that place in my entire life before the quake thing hit. You know, yeah, I became so interested and curious that I started to do a little research for myself. Oh, yeah, you know, I had no idea you guys were the first black republic. 1804, right? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. You know, I saw something about the maroon people, slaves, so clever no one could catch them. It was cool the way those guys hid in those hills. I'll have to go back and read a little more about them. I, I like to know that sort of thing. You know, I consider myself a scholar. I like to do research. I found out that your country used to be gorgeous, too. Uh -huh. Imagine that. I mean, it was a place to be once upon a time, am I right? They called it the Pearl or something like that. That sounds so resort-like, you know. Come on down to the Pearl, lose your shoes and your troubles, have a cocktail with one of those little umbrellas in them to keep the drinks from getting Somebody told me Elizabeth Taylor and other movie stars used to vacation down there. You know, I hear Bill and Hillary Clinton honeymooned down in Haiti. Who knew your country was a place to have a, a honeymoon? Hey, can you believe your country is next to the Dominican Republic? You know, it's like one of those masks you see at the theater. You know, you've got comedy on one side and tragedy on the other side, right? You know, I've taken my family to the DR several times. Nice place, amazing beaches, good food. You never know your country was right next door. Comedy, tragedy. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Of course, of course, I'm getting carried away. Forgive me. Here I am going on and on telling you what you probably already know. You know the stuff, right? 
Believe me when I tell you, I'm, I'm just so sorry for your troubles, your pain. I could almost put myself in your shoes. So, so let's get started. Let's get back to your question about bereavement pay. Because that's, that's why you're in here, yeah? So let's talk about that, you know. If you consult the employee manual, you'll see how bereavement pay is kind of broken down according to proximity. So your mind might be all jumbled up right now with all that you must be going through. Mine would be too. So let me help you find the information you need. Let's see. Now, if you lose a mother or a father, that's an automatic five days off with pay. If you lose a sister or a brother, three days also with pay. Grandparents, two days, but you get paid for only one. First cousins, one day without pay. An uncle or an aunt, depending on how close you were to them, half a day. But you know, we'll need proof, of course, of something, you know, a service. Wait, 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 wait. Bodies in wheelbarrows. Given the circumstances, how do I put this? You won't be required to provide that kind of proof. Yes? Back to the list. Second cousins, let's see. No, they're not on the list. I mean, you would be allowed time off per se, but you would not be allowed time off, but there's always your lunch hour. You know, I mean, you can, you can go outside, cry, you know. Your lunch hour. At any rate, you can see second cousins are just not on the list. Your mother-in-law's brother on her father's side, no, no, not on the list. Let's see, your cousin's sister on his mother's side, nah, sorry. The lady who took care of you for 10 years while your parents immigrated to another country to work and send money so you could go to school, no. It's not on the list. The lady's children. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Thank you. That was bereavement pay. You get paid only for a few. You know how that goes, right? You know, I, I, I know uh, there's somebody who, who read bereavement pay, and she said, Oh, my gosh, Katya, you know, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, she lost her uncle, but then had to tell the bosses that she lost her father because for an uncle, you get one day, and for her father, she got three. So, But the uncle was like a father to her. And um, so, you know, three days to mourn, and then she went right back to what she needed to do. Um, how much time do I have left? I can do one more. Do you guys want me to do one more? (laughs) Hi, fishing. I'm getting good at fishing and at selling myself. This one is called The Disappearance of Yves La Germain. Okay? I'm going to try and read it as quickly as I can. But once again, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. No context. You can just figure out. And, and uh, yeah. Just, don't stare. Look, just pretend you don't see her. She acts like her head is hotter than a heap of burning tires, but there's nothing wrong with that woman. Those antics are all part of a brilliant plan, you see. That crazy beggar strategy had worked successfully now for years. It's still working, otherwise she'd be dead. See how she spins around, shaking her bottom like a hooker high on Beltee, flapping her elbows like a bird with broken wings. All this in front of a church, you know, nothing in Haiti is sacred anymore. 
slick as a diabless she is. How else would she get away with what she's been doing? It takes more than intelligence to hide in the wide open like this. It takes a lot to disappear right before everybody's eyes. You know, she does look like a bone that some stray dog gnawed on and kicked around, doesn't she? Oh, but you know what they say. Every bone in the street had flesh one. And trust me when I tell you that woman had flesh. She had flesh and everything else that comes with being richer than a dozen dictators strung together. She did. You name it, she had it. The house, the servants that ran around like red ants in a cane field. She had chauffeurs Automobiles that cost, cost more than human heads. All that in beauty queen looks to, courtesy of some million-dollar plastic surgeon, though it is impossible to tell that now. You know, she used to strut around the cachet, swaying her hips like nothing in the universe could bother her. Every day was New Year's Day with her new dress and shoes to match. They called her Madame Blanc, you know, white man's wife, but her name was, or should I say, is Yvela Germain. People bowed down before Madame Blanc. She was worshipped. Peasants and gentlefolk alike dropped down on their knees to petition her. Yvela Germain was their own lady of perpetual help, the patron saint of every fish bevender who daydreamed about commending a little respect someday. Yvela herself, you know, she came from nowhere. No one had ever heard of her people, and judging by her shade of black and those slanted eyes, she probably came from Jeremy or somewhere down in that region. And from what I understand, you know, she was a, a stay-with child, a, a modern-day slave for some time before she decided she had enough and hopped on a boat that took her halfway to Miami before the bottom broke from the top. They sent her to Club Guantanamo where she pickled for a few years before they kicked her back this way. And after all that nastiness, she still managed to marry well and get her hands on more money than there are Haitians under the sea. But look at her now. Look at that face. That hair is filthier than a pig giving birth. You know, I thought she went back to her husband's side of the island in 99. I thought her husband's enemies had caught up with her and arranged a second honeymoon in hell. But one Sunday morning after mass, who do I see on the steps of this church with a tin cup in her hand, shaking it and whispering, please, 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 don't be souple like a genuine beggar. Petite, I almost swallowed my tongue. Because back when Yves La Germain was Yves La Germain, the house she lived in sat on the most prized piece of land in Puyblain. The salon alone with its gold chandelier was a sight straight out of Versailles. The rooms glowed while the rest of Puyblain suffered from chronic blackouts. And even though she was an ex-signer, you could have searched the entire island and not find a better library than the one she had in her house. She never spent a minute in anybody's school, but you wouldn't have known it. She had finesse, class, and everything else that comes with Haitian royalty who lived behind monogram wrought iron gates. Her swimming pool, it was wider than a river, boasted a mosaic of amber and mother of pearl. Ivela's house was the new pearl of the Antilles. That's ridiculous. The island must have looked like a buffet through her windows. The panoramic view extended all the way down to the Caribbean Sea. You know, that woman, she had upstairs maids, downstairs maids, kitchen maids, and yard people who kept her gardens blazing year-round. That husband of hers had more security guards than the Atlantic Ocean had souls, but that didn't stop his enemies from getting him. Consuelo. Yeah, Consuelo, that was his name, looked just like that American actor, too. The one from that Scarface movie, yep, that was Consuelo. Tete Coupe, you know, gold-plated skin and megawatt eyes to match. His friends, they called him Lolo for short. We simply called him by what it was, you know, Blancpanyol, a white person who's from 
the Dominican Republic. Lolo had just come back from his country when his servants killed him. They had been watching him board his private jet to come and go in and out of Haiti as if the sky, the sea, and the breeze all belonged to him. He loved Haiti, couldn't get enough of the sunshine, the poverty, the sadness, the rum, the women, and those young boys who went around selling whatever it was that he wanted them to sell. Yeah, and those same young boys went around mowing one another down with guns on loan from the big boss. You know, they watched Consuelo for a long time, watching and burning to kill him. Blancpoyol. He was not in his house one night when they rose up against him. They demanded every ounce of the thing they knew he had brought back from the other side. Like a fool, he resisted. I guess he'd seen too many of those Al Pacino. Yeah, 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 Al Pacino. That's the one. Anyway, Consuelo would have, should have handed them every crumb of whatever it was that he had stored in that house. He should have dropped down to his knees and begged those servants to spare his life. He should have washed their feet with his expensive cologne and used a pile of his silk shirts for towels. But no. You see, Lolo was spoiled. He was used to having his way all the time, used to being the one giving the orders. So they tied him to his own bed and whipped him like a runaway slave. They turned his house upside down, searching for last shoes. They slashed couches, mattresses. They went from room to room, stomping on Irela's good rugs, ripping her expensive drapery. They ransacked her library of unread books. They blew through that house like Hurricane Flora herself, destroying everything in their path until they found what they wanted. And then the men, they turned the bedroom to teach Lolo a final lesson. They returned there to teach him a final lesson. They wanted Ivela, they wanted Lolo to see her bleed. They knew that would rip him apart. But she had already blown out of the house like a hurricane herself, disappearing like a black bird in the night sky. You see, Ivela fled Piblen, didn't bother to knock on anybody's door to ask for help. She didn't waste time begging anyone to let her in. She knew we would have turned her away. What else could we have done? We've all seen the vengeance heaped on good Samaritans. Let the dead bury their dead. That's the motto I live by around here. Especially when drugs are factored in. Anyhow, Evila must have run like her feet were on fire, so fast that her feet never touched the ground. Drivers, taxi drivers on their way home from the city said they saw her galloping down the road like a headless horse. No one stopped for her. Of course, you know, why invite trouble? We all know what went on in her house. She probably ran out of breath when she reached the step of the church. Or maybe she just figured that burying herself under a pile of beggars was as smart a getaway as flying to Madagascar or some other sanctuary. That woman was always so intelligent. I mean, how else do you end up in a house when a house like hers, when you come from stock that's worth less than a pinch of salt at a fish market? How do you end up being driven around by personal chauffeurs and cars painted to match your fingernail color when your last ride was a donkey? Ivela Germain, you know, she had a good brain. First, she got Consuelo to crown her queen of his castle. Then, when the usurpation was underway, she managed to come out unscathed. She vanished by burying herself underneath a clump of beggars. I mean, who would have thought to look for her on the steps of a church, shaking a little tin can, begging, please, please, please. Even I thought she'd left the island for good, you know. The morning when I saw her and I was coming out of mass and and she was there stretching her little cup going, please, 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 in that little voice. You know, I reached into my purse and gave her a dollar. I didn't recognize her at first. She was back alley, filthy, and smelled like she'd never been within 10 kilometers of deodorant. But there was something different about that beggar 
It was in the way she tilted her head back and the what-do-I-care-a blasé manner as she shook that tin can. She was new to the streets. I could tell that. Anyone could see that. And still plenty good-looking, too. You know, I mean, in a behind-the-bushes sort of way, but, but good-looking. When I gave her the money, she lifted her head slightly and I caught a glimpse of her face. She jumped back and fixed her eyes on the ground, but I'd seen enough to know that it was Yvela Germain, Blancpoil's wife. She recognized me too, you know, because she scuttled backwards like a crab in hot sand and joined the other beggars, knowing that she would be as untouchable as a pearl in a bag of maggots. The ones who killed her husband, they searched for her for weeks after that night. They even knocked on my door to ask if I'd seen her. I told them, hey, how am I supposed to know where that woman went? They laughed and went to pound on other doors. They're probably still searching for her, you know? I mean, after all, she was a witness, but look, look. Yvela Germain is here, hiding in front of everybody. Don't stare, I tell you, don't stare. Just act like she's one of the other beggars. A pearl in a bag of maggots. Just pretend you can't see her. Thank you. Okay, now we do the quick, quick, um, not quick, we're going to do question and answers. Um, are you bringing around the mic? We have questions. For our wonderful authors. Thank you, thank you, thank you, ladies. No questions at all? Okay. She's going to bring you the mic. The short story? Was it a true story? I mean, was it a true story? No, this is all fiction. Oh, I just love it. I mean, I'm just imagining everything. I could sort of have them that could relate to it being from Haiti. So I... I you know, there was a connection. <laughs> Wonderful. And thank you for asking if it's a true story. Because I, I, I get that a lot, you know. Somebody would say, is that a true story? And, and one of the favorite, uh, one of the favorite things that, that happened to me is I, I wrote a story about, about a, a person who couldn't read or write. And someone who read the story, he called me and he said, oh, my God. Gosh, Kathy, I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't know you couldn't read, all right? He's <laughs> <laughs> not a smart person. <laughs> okay, come on, let's have some questions. We have one over here. This question is for Tiffany Yannick. I read uh, How to Survive a Leper Colony. I look forward to your novel. Thank you. And I wanted to know how do you, uh, how do the stories come versus uh, when you decided to write a novel? Was it a decision to write a novel? Is the novel born out of stories? Uh, for some of the stories, which I loved and saw how they were interconnected, were you tempted to turn those into a fuller novel? Um, thank you for the question. So this novel took me 11 years to write. Wow. Um, which I don't feel bad about <laughs> um, because it meant I, for me it meant that I was working really hard on it and I wrote uh, my first book How to Escape from a Leper Colony and that's a collection of stories um, and in that collection I was very consciously um, practicing individual things with each story so I, I knew that I was going to write a novel that was going to be big in length but also big in its in its um, attempts. Like, this is a political novel, it's a family novel, but it's also a novel that is written in many voices. I read from the omniscient narrator, and the omniscient narrator in this book calls themselves the old wives. And they know everything about the island, um, as old wives do, but nobody really believes them. As old, people never believe the old wives, and then you get bite in the ass after because the old wives are always right. Um, so the old wives are the narrator, but there's also multiple first-person narrators. So Jacob, who you saw um, as a soldier, he actually speaks for himself. His two sisters, who are the other two main characters, also speak for themselves, and they each have different voices, and they speak very differently. They each speak in a different version of uh, Caribbean English. So I knew I was going to write a novel like that, 
And so in writing the stories and how to escape from our leper colony, I was consciously practicing how to do some of those things in the story. So there are some stories in there that are about voice, where I am attempting to master things that I know I'm doing in the novel, that if I feel like if I can master them in this small space, then I can apply that mastery to the novel. So there's some things about voice, and some, some stories that are about um, scene, some stories that are really about uh, structure. I mean, I have stories that are, I have one story, um, in the book that's called um, uh, International Shop of Coffins that begins in a coffin shop where the coffin shop owner, his best friend who is a priest, and two girls who are buying a coffin are all in the opening scene. And then in the, as, as the story continues, I follow each one of those characters out into the day. And I knew that I was going to do stuff like that in the novel too. So I was practicing it to make sure that I could get it crisply and correctly. So... Um, the story collection, it took me four or five years to write, but it was doing the work also of informing the novel. So the novel is like juggling all these different kinds of things. But there's no particular story that finds its home in the novel. But the things I learned in writing the story collection have found their way into the novel. Thank you. Okay. Do we have another question? Okay, the lady in blue. Yeah, I wanted to know that too. Translate. Please. Um, it's uh, the beautiful thing is, and you notice I always say that when I don't know an answer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the beautiful thing is, I still don't know what, 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 what it means. And my great grandmother began singing that song to me when I was five. And now, obviously, I could do the research and find out. But I love not knowing. Okay. Hmm. You know, because it just okay. it just holds a certain mystery to me. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, you know, her own great grandmother had sung it to her, so it definitely came from some parts of West Africa. Mm. Um, I, I I love it. Soothing to you. Yeah. And scary. Yeah. And scary. Yeah. Oh boy! I mean, they were haunting melodies. Haunting melodies, and I and I love them. Did, did you have that yeah. in your uh, back when uh, someone told stories? Did they include Song. songs? My and- grandmother, who raised me, was put on the false voice bench. I don't know if y'all know what that is when you, you can't sing, and, and they make you <laughs> they they make you mouth the. So um, I didn't have singing in my, in my upbringing. I can't sing either. I played steel pan growing up, but I wasn't very good at that either. Um, so no, we didn't have music. But my grandmother, as a children's librarian, was a storyteller. And so one of the things that she did a lot was tell stories. And that was her job as a librarian, but it also was sort of her job as a grandmother mm-hmm. to tell us stories. Uh, and my book, um, this book, Land of Love and Drowning, ha- incorporates some of the mythologies that she told us. So uh, any of you who are from the Caribbean or know even West African culture, you've heard of the Anansi figure. Right. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the Jebles was mentioned in your piece as well, the Sukoyant. Those are all mythologies in the Caribbean that we've sort of brought over from West Africa. And in my book, those those mythologies become real people who walk around in the book and appear in our characters and talk and, and do things. So her stories made their way into here. Not the songs, but the stories. Okay. The lady in the black and white. <clears throat> My question was for both of you, um, did you study creative writing? You mean like formally? Um, I'm a professor at the new school in Manhattan now where I teach in the MFA program. So I teach you know, young people and older people who are pursuing creative writing formally. There are a lot of problems with the MFA, um, particularly I think if you are doing something different, um, if you're a writer of color, if you're a woman writer, um, and if you're, if you're not following whatever your teacher thinks is the, the way to go. But I have an MFA, and I remember writing things in my class and my teacher telling me, but you can't do that. Mm. You know, you can't have a short story where there are three different narrators in a short story. And um, I was like, fuck you. 
So I was like, no, I don't believe that. You know, I, I think it's possible. But I realized that I was reading things that she wasn't reading. Like she had read all the Faulkner and the, and the Poe and a lot of the classics, but she hadn't read Jamaica Kincaid. She hadn't read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, and I was reading them. And um, no, 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 not at the, I went to Houston. I teach at the new school now. Um, so I only said that, that, yes, I had formal training, but I also had to fight against some of that formal training as well which maybe is always what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. For me, I, I had a, a, a little bit. I had one professor, you know, the, um, I did English literature undergrad, so we read a lot of uh, Faulkner and, and Poe and, and Chaucer, you know, and, and uh, but all that helped, really. It did. It, I internalized a, a lot of it. Um, but I had the best creative writing teacher in undergrad or professor. Her name was Dr. Combs, and uh, she passed away before uh, I published my first story. But I remember I would, she would give us an assignment. One of their favorite assignments was to just give us a word in some foreign language and say, so just take that with you and write a story with it. And then after we did our stories, and she told us what the word really, you know, what, what the word, the definition of the word. And the good thing about uh, Dr. Combs was no matter what I wrote, and if she asked for one story, I'd give her five. And uh, she would say, you know, Katya, I don't know what it means, but I like it. <laughs> so, I mean, I carry that with me. You know, I don't know what it means, but I like it. And, you know, following up on that, as a librarian, you know, sometimes we try to push books by different authors, whether from Haiti or, you know, Jamaica or St. Thomas or wherever, and people say, oh, I can't read the dialect, or, you know, the words are, well, what's this French word? You know, do I just jump over it, or do I then get, you know, a French-English dictionary to try to translate what does this mean? You know, and sometimes I find that as a barrier to... Um, to reading some of the literature from the Caribbean. Um, if you're not from the Caribbean or have an interest in the Caribbean, or some people just don't want to open their minds to like a different story. And finding the similarities in like your novel, your short stories, you know, with people from all over the world, whether you were, I mean, some people in New Orleans could have some of the same, you know, beliefs. Um, from people of the Caribbean of Caribbean descent, and I just hope wish that they would open their minds up a little bit more to you know try something new, read something different, and um, you know say oh that makes sense. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your book, Yannick, um, was I think it was about tying the dead. And I was surprised to read that because I was like, what does this, you know, I was, I heard about it when my grandfather passed, but I had never, ever, ever heard about tying the dead mm -hmm. so that they don't come back into the yard and, you know, cause trouble. And I mean, it's, it was just amazing. So I'm reading these stories and I'm like, you know, wow, you know, and to this day in Jamaica, they still believe in some of that. You know, the traditions and the customs are still there. So I was like, okay, I can relate to, you know, what you're talking about. Some of the other things, I was like, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, but it was, it's still good because I can't wait to finish the book. And I do love Annette in that book. I think she's going to be my favorite, favorite person in the book. And so I will, I can't wait to finish it. Thank you. Okay. May I? Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about tying the devil and, like, get a rope? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> So because this book is set before I was born, I had to do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent a lot of time in the library, um, looking through the archives, um, and talking to my grandmother. And one of the things that's done in the Virgin Islands, not done so much nowadays, um, is that you would, there were little things you would do. One of the things you would do is you would tie the shoes together of the departed. You would tie their shoelaces together so that they couldn't follow you in your life, you know? Um, it, was a, it was so that they could continue um, without you and, and go on. And you would also sew their pockets closed um, so that um, whatever was in their pockets, maybe you would fill it with coins or fill it with, with rocks so that um, when they, you know, crossing the River Jordan, they would sink and not swim back to life. So there were lots of sort of magical things that people did 
that was magical, but that people believed. And I honestly, I believe in that. I believe in all that stuff. I believe in all that magic. Because, and I think we all do, even those of us who will say, oh, not me, I'm in that. You know, we, we go through our lives doing little things every day that proves that we believe in magic. Yeah. Whether you're the sports player who wear your same dirty, nasty socks every time you play <laughs> the game, or, you know, or, or whether it's religion and you cross yourself whenever the ambulance goes by. Um, you know, whatever it is, that's the kind of magic that, that we believe in and impose on ourselves. So my book is full with that kind of stuff yes. um, that I discovered, but also lived in my own life. So, yes. yeah. yeah. And that is also my favorite character for now. I mean, yes. Um, <laughs> and she's very magical. She has some powers. Yes. In, in my country, what we do with the dead, I mean, we don't, in my culture, we want them to follow us and, because we, you know, because they're carrying all this knowledge from the other side. and. And let us know what to avoid. But the one thing that uh, that we do or used to is put in their coffin a spool of thread with a needle with the eye cut off, mm -hmm. or so that there is they, they cannot thread the needle, so that they'd spend eternity just trying to. <laughs> They have something to do. Wow. <laughs> How frustrating. <laughs> yeah. uh, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we do little things. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what still remains culturally, you know, whether we've migrated here yeah. and, and still we may tell the stories over and over again. And so our children will go on and tell their children, oh, you know, yes. they used to do those things back then. And it's amazing, but that's part of the culture. And um, I do appreciate you guys um, telling us those stories. And I hope that you all, if you want your book signed, to go ahead and come on up and get your book signed. Um, are there any more questions that you must ask? Yes. Because, yeah. The first book was the children's book. Yes. Fabiola Conte. I Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's written Bless in Bless your heart, pre-K. They're precious. <laughs> How many years wow. is that? Wow, that's on. She said 26. Oh, wow. wow. Thank you. And a phenomenal <laughs> teacher. Yeah. And for all the people who, you know, reading and want to skip over these words, I think uh, many of us in here who are teachers, would, this is the context clues. You know, yeah. Uh, read around it and, and see what it means. Yeah, Fabiola Conte is written about um, a girl who is a restavec. And uh, restavec translates to stay with in French. And uh, what happens, there are children of poor family who are um, given to families who are doing a little bit better and the parents who gives the child hopes that, that the new set of parents would put the child in school, get them clean clothes and that sort of thing, but um, that doesn't happen. Those children are very often abused and uh, abused in every way you can possibly imagine. And uh, the last time the uh, United Nations did a study, they found about 300,000 Gestavec. But that was a long, that was, that was a while ago. I mean, that study was conducted a, a while ago. And the other thing that happens is if you ask a child, are you a Gestavec? The child will probably say no, because if the current family finds out that you're going around saying you're a Gestavec and then I beat you, then they would, um, you know, really see to it that, uh, that you get in some trouble for, for doing that. But it's something that, you know, you can research Restavec. And uh, my children's book is Fabiola Con Conte. It's about um, a child learning to count from 1 to 10. And, you know, it's like a benign little book, you know, you're reading it, except it's, it's good for the parents. Um, while you're reading this to these kids, you know, you say, Five, that's the, um, that's the size, five-gallon bucket that I carry on my head so the family could bathe, you know. It's like six is my age. Um, seven or eight is the age of the children I, I work for. You know, things, things like that. And, and you're reading it, you're like, this is a Dr. Seuss, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, so it's written in both Haitian Creole and in English. Thank you for having us. Okay. We thank, thank you, you so here. much for having us.